Dark Days Radio, episode number 46. I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. Hello. Hey, what's up, Chris? How's it going over there? It's good. I believe, uh, I believe winter is gone and spring is not turning up uh, because it looks like it's going to get really freaking hot in the next few days. Yeah, the weather's weird. I'm sure it's weird with you. Uh, otherwise, pretty damn good. Work has been... Really good, and uh, yeah, finish off my uh, Vampire the Requiem Chronicle. I say finished the Chronicle, finished season two of the Chronicle, um, which is great fun. Right on, and also joining us, uh, speaking of great weather, we have David Hill. (laughs) Hey, David. Hey, how is it going? How is it going, everyone? Um yeah it's southern california um our our weather is great right now it is so early for me that i could not tell you about that if i had to it seems like winter to me even though it's probably 70 outside so right on right on yeah so we have david here today to uh discuss some of the new cool stuff that he's been writing for white wolf and also one of his own projects apotheosis drive x so we'll be getting to that a little bit later but Mm -hmm. um why don't we just hop on over to the news segment and talk about all the great things that have been happening with White Wolf and Onyx Path. Yeah, so one thing that we've been finding out about is uh, the fact that uh, the God Machine Chronicles and uh, Blood and Smoke, the Strix Murder Chronicle, are not going to be released via Kickstarter or anything like that. It's just going to go straight to print-on-demand and PDF. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm pretty cool with that, actually. I Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of mixed about it because, like, to be honest, it's like with Mage 20th Anniversary and Exalted 3rd Edition coming up, it's nice to have some things that aren't Kickstarter that may... So I don't need to worry about, oh, I need more money maybe if I wanted to have a... A certain version of it whereas i can just get you know the pdf will turn up as a review copy for us at some point and then i can sort out getting the print on demand when i'm actually gonna run it in meat space um but so you know it's a mixed blessing in some respects yeah i mean i think we're actually gonna get them quicker yeah 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 overall it's probably gonna be uh better for us and, you know, with Mummy the Curse, it was great that it was on Kickstarter because it almost felt like we were mm. funding a game line. So yes. that was a cool experience. And Yeah, I mean, that one's, um, uh, what was it, Colin uh, put up a picture that he has, I believe, a some form of physical copy that he's seen. So Yeah, um, yeah it looks really nice. Great it's cover. Close. It's getting close. Yeah, really great cover. Um, and of course, the other thing with Blood and Smoke uh, uh, is that it's been pushed back a little bit more, though, due to some unfortunate writer issues. But David, you expressed how that means it gives you a bit more room to play with some of the stuff that you've been writing for, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. 
yeah, I think it's it's kind of a good thing uh, in the in the long run, even though it does mean that we'll probably get pushed back a little bit on the, the timeline. I'm actually really excited for it, and not just because I get to write more stuff now. Okay, cool. Talking about Kickstarter stuff, uh, as well as we said, Moment of the Curse is getting very close to a physical version being available, well, done and then being shipped. Uh, Hunters Hunter 2 is close to is, is actually uh, getting ready for approval and Anarchs Unbound is being edited so uh, that's going along Werewolf 20th Anniversary is I believe off to the printers for the physical copies yeah. of the backers um, and of course Mike and I have received the early uh, review vouchers for the print or demand copy um so uh, that'll be great when that comes out to review. Um, mm-hmm. and th- I mean, all this is crept from the uh, White Wolf blogs. Um, so Mage 20th anniversary is obviously being prepared in some way, you know. Uh, so Phil Bricato is sorting out his writers for it. So that's all pretty cool. And, ooh, Demon is... I. Very happy to see. Um, I, I've yet to actually read through it, but um, so Demon the whatever you want to call it, Demon Fruitang, I believe is its current <laughs> nickname, mm-hmm. is getting actual play reports by uh, Matt, which is kind of wicked. Have you read that, Mike? Nope. Didn't even know they existed. Oh well, you, now you do. Um, yeah. So it'd be cool to read that to get us uh, get more of a feel for um, how he uh, is what feel that um, Demon is going for. Uh, what other news have we got, Mike? Because uh, you added some more show notes here. Uh, I did. So uh, we found out through the Vampire the Requiem blog that mm. Rose Bailey is now Onyx Path's development producer. I have mm. no idea what that entails, but I guess we'll have to get her on the show to ask. Yep. That would be kind of cool. Unless unless David knows what it is. I can basically tell you. Um, she's kind of like the boss of the writers now. Um, she's sort of an organizing developer for um, for all of the various writers. Um, so if you're like, say, you're developing one of the many books that Onyx Path is currently working on, you report to her um, to let her know the status, the progress, and any complications that you run into. Um, so anytime I get hired on as like an editor for a project, if like an editor falls out or something, she's the one that does it. So she's basically like, she is the kitten herder for all of the writing side of Onyx Path. Cool. Uh, and then uh, I, I put in the show notes, there's even more info on the White Wolf blogs for stuff that is uh, non-World of Darkness uh, related stuff. So we're talking like uh, Trinity. Uh, there's been some meetings for that to see how that's being planned out. Um, Exalted 3rd Edition is trundling along in some form and getting closer and closer to... Uh, getting ready for Kickstarter. Uh, any other bits on the news front, Mike, that I've missed? Yeah, actually, remember those two emails I sent you? So um, I was just trolling around on RBGA.net, and then there's some cool little tidbits that have come out about uh, both Demon and Blood and Smoke. So uh, Rose okay, Bailey yeah. mentioned that Demon's going to have its own take on cryptids, which are, of course, uh, something that uh, Chris enjoys talking about on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have to see what that is, just kind of a little bit of a teaser there. And also we know that St. Petersburg... I believe St. Petersburg, Russia, is going to be in Blood and Smoke. So that could be a very cool setting for it. Sweet. 
And then I think to cap off the news segment, uh, we can actually talk about the competition that Dark Days Radio is currently running. Um, so that's been up on our feed since uh, the 10th and will be running until the 10th of May. Um, and it's very simple. Uh, the winner of it will um, will be chosen from people that get the question right. So it's by raffle. Um, and they will receive a print-on-demand, uh, not print-on-demand, PDF copy of uh, Mummy the Curse. And the question is, which clan of vampires in the New World of Darkness supposedly originates from the cult of Set? And Mike, where can they send their competition entries to? Darkadaysradio at gmail.com. I think that wraps up the news segment. I think it does. So with that, why don't we just move on over to the first part of our interview discussing convention book progenitors. Classic World of Darkness. All right, David, you've been pretty busy over there writing for uh, New World of Darkness and Classic World of Darkness. So why don't we start off with just a real brief overview of the uh, convention book progenitors, which is going to be coming out um, pretty soon, we expect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's actually supposed to be coming out really soon. Um, I was the writer on the rules chapter of that, so I, I did all of like the powers and the gear and everything. I was also the editor on that book. Um, uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so I got uh, pulled in on that. So basically, what we um, what we're doing for the convention books is um, kind of updating the mage setting, assuming that the the um, events of Ascension did not happen. And they were dragging up to 2012, 2013. Um, so this gives us a fun opportunity to do like, okay, so how's the Occupy movement reflected in Mage? Um, you know, how is Anonymous? That sort of thing. Um, and that's that's been a real blast on that. Good stuff. Uh, so you're working on the rules section. Uh, can we expect some kind of kinds of like Bioware and those sorts of options? Yeah, I did. Um, let's see. For Progenitors, I did um three different kinds of modifications i did um simple bioware mods i did really hard hacks to the body um that are like experimental uh and then i did really subtle minor genetic engineering stuff mm-hmm. um so there's mm-hmm. lots of really cool options um, also i added options for playing dolphins so if you want to play a dolphin in age it's in there sweet Okay. <laughs> War of the Darkness Blood Dim Tides just got a whole new aspect added to it. It got super cool and awesome. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I had a lot of fun with the various gen-engineered creatures. Um, and so there's like, you can play dinosaurs, you can play dolphins, you can play um, squid. Um, I think if I get a chance to play anytime soon, I'm going to play an uploaded squid because I don't get a chance to play a clear phase enough. So with all these, all the kind of like I say, tech and um, and uh, powers that you've and rules that you've written for it, is there anything? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you, you've you went back through some of the, the the classic technocracy books that that came out where the progenitors have been showcased before. So is there kind of like some stuff that was kind of weird, kind of back then that you know just doesn't fit in and was kind of humorous looking back at it and going, yeah, I think that can go. And also what kind of like biotechnology has turned up since we last saw the progenitors 
in whichever book it was they were last in and you know has in fact slotted quite neatly in with that convention so i'm talking like you know how we how we're now into this age of like you know we can print you know we, we're almost to the point where we can print flesh and certain organs or um and i'm trying to think of like some i'm trying to think of some of the old progenitor like power and powers and technology which back then seemed kind of a flight fantasy and in today's like seems completely ridiculous and pointless oh man it um, you know i read i read the old other stuff as a part of it but basically everything like i'm trying to think of anything that was not outdated by now um mm. it, it was actually kind of crazy because i was able to add notes about things like the genome project um i there is a there is a, a tissue printer uh in there um mm -hmm. the the enlightened drugs got updated um those i think are probably the least changes um but literally like everything in there was out of date by this point. And it's funny because all of it was considered like enlightened science 20 years ago um, <laughs> because there, there wasn't a revised edition progenitor's book. There was only a first edition one. So like all of that information I'm like reading it and I'm like, this is not hyper science. This is a couple of years ago science. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So while, while, while on other books, whenever you update, sometimes it's, because you can sort of rehash the same old things. You can't do that with, with technocracy books in general, but progenitors um, especially. Um, I had that problem in New World. So I think that as far as like updating settings go, like, you know, Mage 20s could be awesome and everything, but I think that the technocracy books were the hardest to actually do that in. Uh, just because like we, we couldn't crib anything from the old material. Uh, I mean, we could like sort of poke fun at it from an inverter perspective. You know, we could look yeah. at things. Yeah, look, we had characters in voice being able to say, okay, so the stuff that we thought was, you know, enlightened that was giving this paradox 20 years ago, now that stuff is like, you know, you, you we have we have generic knockoff versions of that stuff. Um, so yeah, so it, we it, it it's cool because we can present these books from the viewpoint of well, the technocracy is winning, and we have examples. And one of the things, because when you were on last and we were talking uh, also with Lillian about the uh, New World Order book, was the fact that um, you can look at certain things like the Occupy movement and, um, you know, how the stock markets have gone and all that as certain large-scale kind of, um, large-scale kind of like paradox events as the technocracy kind of technology and enlightened science becomes the main paradigm. There's also kind of major blips along the way as kind of like i don't know how to how to word it whether it's it's i guess it's to to an extent of like how much humanity is accepting it or it was too good to be true um and have you worked that in with uh, done the same thing with the progenitors so obviously we're getting in this day and age you know we've got the end of <laughs> we're seeing the end of penicillin being of any use uh We've got like the danger of certain pandemics, whether it's like bird flu or pig flu or or dolphin flu or whatever. Um, and then, of course, any other new dangers of biotechnology, because, of course, um, you know, we've got uh, we're slowly getting to the point where, you know, what's the truth behind how viruses really work? Are they alive or because they're, they're so small, they're not really the same thing as bacteria. And obviously where we've come in the last however many years with, you know, how biotechnology relates to other diseases like HIV AIDS and so forth. So how have you kind of worked that those kind of thing, events and revelations in and, 
I guess you've also worked that into how uh, the convention, uh, the progenitor's timetable is now set up and how they see mm. the future or what should be the future. Well, the, so the, the real challenge with, with that sort of thing is that we can't address it directly. Uh, yeah. We have to address it through sociological means um, mm -hmm. because in, in the old books, um, in the old progenitor's guide and the guide to the technocracy, you have effects, um, you have enlightened science that can literally fix all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you can just, you know, make a roll, it's all gone. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to address how difficult it is to get the consensus to accept these things mm -hmm. um, and how it's, it's, it's actually a really terrible tragedy and it's very hard to live through. You know, how do you deal with yourself? You have the power to literally fix everyone in the world, but they don't want you to, they won't let you They don't believe that that's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, so you you have to ration out and dole out this, this amazing power. This, uh, this, you know, humanity furthering ability that you have uh and you can't just say okay i'm going to do it to everyone i'm going to fix the entire world um so while the technocracy uh, you know they are the the antagonists of the ancient universe um you get to really present them as as tragic heroes in this regard um because what they really want in this situation and the, the progenitors particularly is they want to fix everything they want to make everyone better and you've got these forces these privileged fucking selfish ass mages who they want to have their magic powers and they're going to stop the rest of the world like the progenitors could have cured aids by now the world mm -hmm. could not have that that concern we could have cured cancer by now so these goddamn hippies with their crystals and their magic spells they think that they have the right to say you don't deserve this treatment and that yeah. sucks you know it's it, it works as a really good allegory for like you know the catholic church in, in africa you know they, they put all of this effort to stopping people from getting treatment that would save their lives because they believe that they know better for these people and mm. as far as the people who have the cures and have the treatments as far as they think you you don't have the right to make that decision people have a right to live and and it is absurd and it is an affront to, to everything these doctors stand for that we can't help people yeah that's that's pretty cool that really does address all of that um yeah okay uh mike next question or do you want to lead on from that nope <laughs> 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 yeah, that was pretty hard. But it, you know, again, it, I think that's that's really cool to have that in the progenitor's book because again, as you know, Mage the Ascension compared to Mage the Awakening in Mage the Ascension, you know, the technocracy is always kind of presented as the bad guys. But really, when you play as them, you know, they, as you say, they are kind of tragic heroes, and um, it's very frustrating for them. I mean, especially for the progenitors when you think about it, like. Um, that works into the idea of like how doctors in the real world have to go about with their uh, treatments because it doesn't matter with some cases it doesn't matter how good the treatment is if the person doesn't believe they're going to get any better they're not going to get any better and i guess the progenitors are uh, kind of facing that on a on a global you know consensual scale mm -hmm. 
Nice. Well, I guess uh, then, considering you've had the opportunity, David, to you know, you've been involved in editing with the book. Um, what other stuff have you seen while editing the book that's stood out from uh, as being pretty cool that the other writers have uh, added? Whether it's so, uh, some cool thesis that they've done or some uh, you know interesting NPCs, you know that kind of thing. One thing that um, that I'm I'm actually really excited for. I got a chance to write for this part part, but like everyone literally got to contribute to it. Is that we added another faction to the progenitors because we felt that as um, as they were presented in in previous books. Progenitors were kind of unplayable characters because they were all background characters. They all spent all of their time in labs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And so we have, um, God damn it, I can't remember what they're called now. Um, so our, the, the, the back, the um, behind closed doors term that we used for the most action scientists. Um, okay. I think, yeah, I think, I think they're called damage control operatives or something. I don't know. But, um, Basically, we wanted to do field operatives because science is not something that only occurs in labs. Science is yeah. something that occurs across the world, um, and so you have these these opportunities to play, you know, the Indiana Jones character who is going around and collecting rare um, fauna and you know maybe hunting down supernatural creatures to to you know pull them in and study what's making them tick. That way, we can use them for better cures and what have you. Mm-hmm. So we have these these field agents who are just totally all action, not paperwork, not lab work. Um, and I, we, we really wanted to do this in order to give them a, a heavily playable angle that can work with any amalgam of technocrats. Um, yeah. 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 So you have you have the opportunity to play these sort of like action hero scientists uh now and i think that everyone really hit home with that um because it's it's really i think it's important whenever you're playing technocracy to remember that science happens in the real world and that that there are people who are doing these things who aren't in lab coats Mm. um because lab coats i mean you know i think lab coats are sexy but some people don't um and 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 being able to um, to to take the the science and bring it out to the Amazon jungle like that's that's a different paradigm and that can draw in a lot of people who might not be interested in playing them otherwise. Excellent. Yeah, I can now just imagine the type of people. Yeah, the type of characters in the rainforest hunting down some weird cryptid, and you know, just before he he uh, before that. Um, agent goes after it is mostly down in a few performance enhancing drugs um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i got to write my single favorite art note for that um for that faction uh, was exciting but yeah i love them uh mike any other questions on on that or uh, are we done on progenitors yet i don't know or is that i think so i mean i think we just wanted to kind of briefly uh just come yeah. at because uh, we happen to get notification that would be coming out pretty soon. So uh, yeah, yeah. We want so to we can talk more when we get it. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. So with that, I think let's move on over to the uh, secret frequency, right? Yeah. All right, Chris, you tantalized us with this last episode. So uh, what do you have for us today Today, on The Secret Frequency? 
I cannot claim the reward for this one. This one was found by uh, Sam, my wife. Um, she was reading up on some stuff after we'd been uh, to Amsterdam and made me aware of uh, Black Matthew. Um, uh, and it's quite unfortunate she she uh, searched around for some information on this this uh, ghost, but there isn't much out there. So obviously, if any listeners who are you know, from the Netherlands that know a bit more, because obviously they can read the language, um, they should uh, follow it up. But I'm also going to present uh, another one as well, which is the Phantom of the Theatre Companion. So, let's begin with Black Matthew. Amsterdam has many haunted locations, and in particular there is Dam Square, which is just outside the palace in the city centre. Now, Black Matthew is one of the most famous ghost of the city. He in fact haunts the entire city. He was a 13th century highwayman and as legend also says he was a thief and a magician. He was a scoundrel and a gambler and of course he used his command of the dark arts to ensure that he was always the winner. Though Black Matthew did meet his eventual end when the devil himself came for his soul. And now his ghost haunts the streets of the city. The next one, uh, the Phantom of the Theatre Companion, is of course kind of a lesser known counterpart to the French Phantom of the Opera. Uh, the theatre in question where this phantom is seen was built upon a lo where a lunatic asylum was. The Phantom is the only ghost of the theatre and has a reputation of being a critic of the shows that I've put on and he typically appears on the opening nights of the shows that have, and those shows then go on to, be, to have successful runs. This means if you don't see this strange figure on the opening night of a show then you may as well leave in the intermission because it means that show is going to be pretty bad. So, David, uh, Mike, what do you think? What type of things could we use them for or what do you think is quite interesting about them? Well, um, the, the Black Matthew sounds to me like a wonderful front for a cult or maybe a guild of people um, who they intend on swindling uh, the people around them, the people in Amsterdam. They intend on swindling the people of Amsterdam and they use this as a sort of in. Uh, it's their front, their cover ID. Uh, they all use a similar costuming, they all use a similar rising in order to build up this myth. Um, mm -hmm. They confront people and they, they put them in situations where they um, they have to make life or death decisions um, on a gamble. Uh, uh, and basically once they have lost these, because of course the, the cult are specialists in these games of chance, um, mm -hmm. It, the, the victims have no choice but to deliver unto them either cash tributes uh, or maybe a bit of their blood, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, working off that, I was, yeah, as you were going through that, I immediately thought of the um, Scarecrow Ministry uh, in Changeling the Lost, uh, which is a entitlement, and yeah, you could mostly rework. Uh, the Scarecrow Ministry to be 
an entitlement that is Black Matthew, and that's what all the uh, changelings uh, take persona of, and so it would be a entitlement linked to the uh, Awesome Court. Mike, any kind of like classic World of Darkness use you could think of? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I'm kind of trying to think about the uh, the Phantom that you mentioned. And, uh, oh, okay. He uh, seems quite tame, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, he fits in perfectly just with Wraith as a Wraith, uh, feeding off of the uh, passions of the opera. And uh, if he's not uh, feeling that passion of the, uh, the show that night, he's not going to stick around. So that makes perfect logical sense in Wraith the Oblivion. I was going to say, working on that, as you say, he... he, he He's there to feed off the passion of the uh, the opera or the play or whatever's on, and maybe the the important point is not the ghosts that is present, but the ghosts that aren't present. So maybe he has to feed on. He he looks for the good shows, you know, the critically acclaimed performances to feed upon, because he needs this uh, passion, this energy, because he's the gatekeeper, the very person that's keeping all the ghosts from the lunatic asylum in, you know, the underworld. And if he doesn't get enough, then uh, every so often one of these lunatics gets out and causes havoc and bedlam in the theatre and in the city. He is a, um, to me, he's the villain in a technocracy campaign. <laughs> okay. uh, in your in your out okay. So so if follow me here, he's a celestial chorister. Okay, uh, he's a part of the celestial chorus, and the people who would be going to the theater in Amsterdam, and Amsterdam is a pretty nice progressive, um, you know, modern city. Um, so the people who are going to be there, those are going to be uh, you know very very forward thinking, very intelligent, very educated people, uh, very very secular people. Yeah. Um, what better way to get them away from from enlightened thinking than to scare them back into the grace of God? <laughs> yes. Excellent. Cool. Um, any last ideas on any of those? Um, well, I'm trying to ponder how uh, Black Matthew and uh, the Phantom interact. I mean, they're both in the same city, both in the same area, and if they're both ghosts... Well, they could, yeah. I mean, if you want to work with that, they're obviously both members of a, they're they're um, they're geists, and they are the they get embodied in a crew in some manner, uh, which is that's a really obviously a very simple uh, explanation or a way of working them into a game. Mm -hmm. Ooh, what else? No, I think that'll do. There's plenty to work with there. And, of course, if anyone has any more ideas, any listeners, they should email them in. And, uh, hell, even if they fit, if they like some of these ideas, maybe they should uh, write them up for us and, and email it in so we can put it in uh, Forgotten Law. Indeed. Sounds awesome. And with that, I think we should move on to the New World of Darkness segment. World of Darkness 2.0. So, David, you've also, of course, been working for the NWAD a little bit, and we have two huge new products coming out, which you've been uh, integral in the design of and writing of. And those would be the Gamachine Chronicles and Blood and Smoke, the Strix Murder Chronicle. So, uh, these offer uh, quite a few changes to the core system of the World of Darkness and seem to be transitioning it more into a sort of a story game um, in, in a way that it wasn't before. 
and, and taking into account a lot of the uh, more modern uh, sensibilities of, of role-playing games, which I'm very glad to see. Could you speak a little bit about some of the overall changes that we're going to be uh, seeing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's, there's a lot of them, so uh, bear with me. The biggest change, I think, from... Um, from my perspective, um, that I, uh, I was part of was the um, the experience system. Mm-hmm. Um, from 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 the math side of it, I got rid of um, scaled costs. Everything is uh, everything is a linear cost system now. So if you want to buy a scale two experiences, you want to buy an attribute. It's four. Um, a merit is one, um, and it's every dot is that much, and that's just how much it is. So you don't have to worry about like how to optimize your character creation or anything like that um but on the on the gameplay side of it where you get your experience from is, is significantly different you get your experience um, by earning what we call beats um five of them um beats are the smallest unit of drama in a um in a screenplay or in a play mm-hmm. and basically whenever dramatic things happen in the story you get a beat um, a lot of times those, those come up almost every time they're going to come up to player agency. So say, for example, if you fail a role. Um, if you fail a role, you can choose to turn it into a dramatic failure. And if you do so, it be, you get a beat for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you're rewarded for opting into a worse thing. Um, that I thought was a big deal because in, as the system is um, set up, dramatic failures don't really happen. Um, I've probably seen three in the entire time that I've played New World of Darkness. Yeah, um, same here. Yeah, and then ironically, during my first big playtest session for the new rules, we had three in that first session. <laughs> um, so we literally had more, as many or more, in that one session as the entire the last seven years of play. A lot of times, uh, things like um, if if someone uses a power on you submitting to that power is going to give you um going to give you a beat so like for example um if someone uses majesty on you um and they want you to do something that is against your character's best Mm -hmm. interest instead of arguing over you know what would my character do and all of that you're going to be rewarded for doing that yeah um yeah so like if it's a yeah. I was going to say with the beats and everything, it's um, it's to me it's sounding like uh, a, a kind of like you're taking what Eddie Webb calls playing to lose and yes. putting it into into the tabletop game, and you and and the players still have player agency even with bad things that they uh, they as a player traditionally would not want to do in that kind of competitive D and D sense, but in this way you you have control even over your own fuck-ups, which is great. Cool. Yeah. The, um, yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely that. Because I found when I, okay, so when um, I was designing my first solo game um, with Philomena, my wife, Machine mm-hmm. Age, we were doing, um, we did Machine Zite, and we realized that during the, the, um, the, the play test, the, the playstorming sessions, that the best way that we scare the players is by letting them scare themselves <laughs> yeah okay uh, yeah, yeah so if you put that into the players hands and they know this is a horror game the characters are supposed to be you know frightened they're supposed to be harrowed then they will do that if you as long as you give them a, some sort of reward some sort of carrot at the end of the stick there and it's worked really really well 
Um, but it's not all negative too. Like you also get, um, you also get it from positive things. We have one of the new systems, so we call them conditions. Mm-hmm. Conditions are like very specific tags that you put on your character. Each one of them does something different. Some of them are very negative. Some of them are positive. Some of them just sort of fuss with the rules in weird ways. Every one of them modifies the rules in a certain way. And then once you resolve it, you get a B. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah. So, like, say, for example, you get um, you get the, the swooning condition. You, you basically you have butterflies in your stomach or someone. Uh, whenever you do something stupid that puts you in danger for that person, you resolve it. You get a B. But while you still have that condition, they're, they're going to get a plus two on any social role against you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's in your best interest to resolve that quickly because they're going to get all these bonus dice against you. Uh, and also you get experience whenever you do so. But then on the other end of that spectrum, you have like the inspired condition. One, uh, you know, gives you a rousing speech, you know, they can take our mm-hmm. lives, but they can't take our freedom, whatever. You get the inspired condition. And um, from, from then on out, you get like a plus one on any actions that relate to that thing. Um, so when you resolve it, you basically, you're spending a willpower on something that re- relates to it or whatever. You resolve it, you get the B, but you no longer have that benefit. Mm-hmm. So you're shedding the, the positives there. Oh, okay, yeah. That's kind of cool because listening to it, it, it um, my brain immediately, all the cogs are going. I'm just like thinking it will be damned cool to see that apply to Changeling the Lost because that could potentially make the uh, the rules for um, for pledges a hell of a lot nicer than oh, yeah. than they stand right now. Mm-hmm. That'll be really sweet to see. But yeah, we'll we'll leave that one on the on the on the boiler pl- on the back plate to uh, boil away and uh, cool. Um, and of course, the other cool thing uh, that we've seen, uh, we've read, and we've seen variants for is the is to do with the morality system, and obviously related to that, the humanity system for vampire, and that's getting quite a shakeup. And um, yeah, can maybe David, if you want to kind of explain kind of the, the thinking behind that shakeup and how it how it compares to the what we what, what we're more used to seeing already, and what we'll get instead. Absolutely, absolutely. So morality is um, doesn't exist anymore. So I don't like to call it the morality system. It's, it's yeah, nothing. okay. Yeah. So uh, we don't have morality anymore. Um, we don't have class humanity in the sense of uh, what we used to call humanity in the old world of darkness and in the first iteration of the new yeah. world of darkness. So morality in in human characters and poor world of darkness characters uh, gets stripped out, and now there's a system we call integrity. Um, integrity is more based on the, um, the experiences that you have to go through, um, the challenges to your, your mind and soul as you um, experience the, the truths of the world of darkness and the, 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 the darkness of the world of darkness. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more like post-traumatic stress, a little less um, Victorian morality that where if you steal something, it turns you into a crazy person. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've never liked that. So I was I was really excited about the the integrity system that Matt threw together. Um, I got to build humanity for vampire off of that very very rock core. My humanity system is completely different than the the, the integrity system though, um, mm-hmm. because I wanted to reflect something completely different, and I also wanted to show a stark difference between the two game lines. 
as it okay. stands. Yeah, like you've got the, well, the, the new World of Darkness. You've got the, the basic morality system in World of Darkness. And then all of the other games sort of have the exact same system with a couple of different things skinned onto it. Yeah. Um, I didn't do that with Vampire. I wanted to show a stark, stark contrast uh, because I feel that that's one of the things that, that Vampire sort of did um, did less effectively than they could have is that they didn't they didn't sort of fork from the core world of darkness enough to emphasize the things that wanted that Vampire wanted to mm-hmm. be. So humanity and Vampire now is how you relate to humanity, how much you remember being human, how much you understand the people around you, how well you can blend in with the flock. Um, yeah. So now the things that are going to make you lose humanity are things like, um, for example, if you get shot, that that will make you risk humanity loss, not because it hurts, but because it doesn't hurt because you just got shot and you're kind of like looking at the bullet and you're like, oh, shit, this would have killed someone. <laughs> this doesn't matter to me. Um, I can just heal this. Uh, so that is something that makes you less human uh, at higher levels of humanity. It might be, you know, listening to someone talk about having a child. That would mm. be like a humanity nine or a humanity 10 potential loss. Um, then at some at different levels throughout the, the spectrum, you'll have um, not having meaningful contact with a human being. So mm-hmm. if you are locked up in your lab, you are in your crypt for you know a week, a month, a century, whatever, and you don't have meaningful contact with people outside of food, that that will make you lose humanity. Um, and one of the things that vampires use to hold on to their humanity now is what we call touchstones. Touchstones are persons, places, or things um, that they uh, that remind them of what they used to be. Uh, so mm-hmm. it might be, you know, an old loved one. It might be a family member. Um, it might be that locket with a picture of your dad, whatever. Um, and these things, um, they give you a grounding point to to keep your perspective, to keep you from becoming completely a monster. Mm-hmm. Um and as these touchstones are, are risked, as um, if you, so that locket, if that locket gets lost, at that point, you feel the draw of torpor. Your, your soul is just weighing too much on you, and you have to replace that touchstone quickly, and you also lose humanity for it. Or you're going to drop into torpor. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's significantly different than what it was. It's going to reflect something completely different. Um, and so far, it's it's been sort of weird. I've I've been watching people on forums and stuff as they've um, as they've had sort of like this weird dissonance with what humanity used to be and what it is now um, because mm-hmm. they're, they're like, but wait a second, stealing stuff is not a humanity thing. Well, no, I actually I think that, that stealing stuff is very human. It is something that yeah, yeah. most people do in their lives, and it's something that that vampires vampires don't care about stealing. That's not an issue for them. That's not that's not something that is going to 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 make them think, oh well, I'm not human anymore. No, because that's something that everyone does. Um, they're like, well, what about what about killing in self defense? You didn't address that. Well, that's a good question. You know, most people don't kill in self defense, and when they do, it shakes them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you're, you're not going to get off easily that way. This is not a morality system. It has nothing to do with what we feel is right or wrong. This what it has everything to do with what we feel is human and inhuman. And frankly, killing people, we're we're just drawing that line and saying that that is inhuman. Um, so that that is something that's going to test your humanity. 
Um, but then on the other hand, um, anytime you test your humanity, anytime you test detachment, you're going to get one of those beats, one of those experiences that we were talking about. Um, so this gives you an incentive to engage that mechanic and to, to be out there on the front line doing shit that is going to test and question whether or not your character is still a human. Awesome. Yeah, because again, you know, the reward to face these horrible things, you know, in a gamistic sense, as a as a player, you don't want to do it. But if there's a reward for for engaging in the story, whether good or bad, that's that's obviously how I like to see things. Um, and no, that's really cool because, like, I guess with the the new integrity system, I'm right in thinking that um, your integrity that there's in te- there's break is it break points or breaking know, points, yeah. Breaking points, then will be there will be breaking points for hideous things. If you, if your character sees something, I mean, the only way to describe it is some Cthulhuid level terror. That would be mm-hmm. a breaking point because obviously your brain can't, you know, process what the hell you're seeing, and that you know that's something that the current New World of Darkness morality system completely misses and. Because, but it would actually degrade your your soul in some way, your sense of being and and your sense of place in the universe. So I can I can see there's going to be some really great ways of how that that gets um, modified and used for say for Mage the Awakening. I think again in that sense it's hubris. It makes sense. It's like you're more than human because you can change the world. So the things that will make you feel more human will be doing stuff that doesn't involve magic. Um, and you could see some of this in, um, in changing the lost because some of the breaking points were like engaging with the hedge and so forth. Um, so if you wanted to maintain high clarity, you didn't do certain things that make you a changeling. Um, I can't remember Mike, is that the same with mummy, the curse as well? I think there's a few things in the memory, uh, memory. I remember actually Colin said something about, he would actually try and do something for memory so we could make use of it. Because I can already say, like, for Geist that I want to run in the next few months, I will most likely try and make use of some modification of combining synergy and integrity. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, what I like about the humanity system, I think it speaks towards the the way that the World of Darkness systems are designed, is that... um, I like it a lot, and I feel like I could probably just easily port this into Vampire the Masquerade if I wanted to. Oh, God, yeah. And that yep. would be awesome. Um, so I guess, I guess David, uh, since you've been working on both God Machine and uh, Blood and Smoke, do you see that uh, a lot of these systems are, uh, because there's a lot of new rules being introduced, do you think people are going to be able to easily just cherry-pick what they want and put it into their game? Uh, maybe take uh, Integrity, but maybe leave the new combat system alone? There's a short answer and a long answer to that. Basically, the sh- the short answer is sure. We designed everything to be modular as we could. Um, the long answer is sort of some of the stuff is more modular than others. Um, like for example, it's not very hard to replace the beats that we have um, for all of our various systems with the old experiences. If you want to do that, um, you can do it just fine. Um, just change out the word, um, and you don't have to worry about the the, the flat costs anymore. You can do that. You can swap out the experience system just fine. Um, the combat system is pretty easy to swap out as well. Um, it's just a couple of minor minor changes, really. Uh, a lot of it is mostly in how it's structured. Um, a lot of it has been rephrased and um, sort of cleaned up, but it runs 
basically the same. The big change is clearly the, um, the way that damage works. Uh, and if you don't want to do it that way, you don't have to do it that way. I would say that if you aren't using the damage rules as they stand, it might cause complications with things like the vampire disciplines because they were definitely designed with those in mind. New resilience, new vigor, new mm -hmm. um, new celerity. They really, really scream for the, the current combat system, not the old one. Um, it would work. It might cause some unintended consequences. Interesting, interesting. Um, yeah, I think, um, obviously, you know, with the Gold Machine Chronicle rules, we'll be also getting that as a uh, free uh, download. Um, so people can start making use of that uh, in their games uh, if they, they're not interested in the actual Chronicle itself. Uh, is there much you can tell us about the, the kind of the Mortals default Chronicle? Uh, kind of like themes and I, I'm guessing in more general terms, so like themes and moods and kind of uh, features really for what what we can play with just straight mortals because this is kind of a first. Um, well, I mean, I I always kind of viewed uh, the, the the new world of darkness as as doing that by default, but so now we have we do have a default chronicle. Um, the God Machine Chronicle itself is. Um, it has a lot of um, it has a feeling of sort of the um, the overarching plot in a television show, um, in a lot of like say your X Files. It would take the place of the um, like the black uh, black oil the the aliens yeah. plot. Um, I you know it, it is it is a, sort of a meta plot idea, but it's um, I don't like using that word because it's very loaded. It has a lot of baggage with World of Darkness fans. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, is, it is basically a kit for designing that sort of thing. Um, and it uses the basic idea of the God Machine, this thing that is um, thing that is greater, thing that is beyond understanding as its framework. Um, but really, the God Machine Chronicle is all about giving you the – empowering you to – take this raw idea that we have and use it in any number of different ways. So there's not like in the God Machine Chronicle, it's not like, okay, so if you're scene one, you're scene two, you're scene mm -hmm. 18. Um, it doesn't work that way. The way that um, the God Machine Chronicle is set up, um, because I don't think anyone's actually talked about this too much because um, everyone caught up in the rules. Um, <laughs> the God Machine Chronicle is set up in tiers the way that like Hunter and you can and choose which one you want to take and you can you know pick and choose ideas from each one of them so you might have a tier one um, god machine chronicle game where you're just affecting things on the local level uh, and then you might have a tier four god machine game where everything that you're doing is changing the universe forever um, everything is going to have cosmic repercussions um, and we have like i think three four five examples of each okay. um yeah, yeah. Philomena says at least at least three, four, five of each, because I know she did about three each, um, and oh, she was not the only writer on that. Yeah, John Sneed did some. I think John Kennedy, and I think um, oh no, John Kennedy didn't. Okay, um, it was just you guys. Okay, so it was, yeah, it was <laughs> her and John Sneed um, did them. Um, yeah, they're really awesome. Ones are Philip. <laughs> Will we um, see some some uh, some of the some of the ideas and story hooks that were in the God Machine anthology? Maybe given uh, kind of given as like example NPCs or or rules that turn up in the God Machine Chronicle. So not I don't know. Really? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's just, a, it's just an idea. Yeah. No. 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 Philomena was involved in that, um, and so okay. was I. 
don't know if John was involved in that anthology or not. I don't, I don't think he was. And I, th- I think that John Sneed referenced a couple of the stories okay, in yeah. slightly more like secondary ways. I know Philomena in, in a couple of secondary ways. There are no direct translations of the stories. Yeah, um, but like yeah. they're referred to, so you can use them as the story as some, as you say, background material, or it's the, um, it's the, it's the, it's the bit that occurs before the episode, and then the episode happens, and that's where the players of the group step in and get involved in the repercussions of what you've already seen in that short story. Yeah, yeah, Ooh. because uh, like fiction, particularly with with a lot of game fiction. Um, while it can read really well and it can tell you a neat story, they're rarely the um, the actual progression that would occur in a chronicle. Yeah, um, yeah. For for like a million different reasons, uh, so sometimes it's a little bit challenging to do. But I know they are referenced, but just not like deeply. Okay. And with Requiem, I mean, um, I you know I've read some of the uh, some of the spoilers on some of the disciplines and there's some really great stuff i think i think i i i when i first saw the the redo for animalism that was like completely badass new powers in there that makes animalism so much more fun to use but um how how much more would you say requiem has been focused and made more dis- i would say has been more has become a more focused game compared to the original requiem core book and at the same time uh, how has Requiem become more distinct now from Masquerade? Oh God, um, that's, that's <laughs> no, like seriously, that's that's a big one. So everyone, um, there's been a lot of discussion on this, and a lot of people are like um, have said, well, you know, it's, it's technically not a new edition, but it's kind yeah. of a new edition because we're doing a new focus, we're doing new rules and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of people have been like, well, you know, so it's just, you know, consider it like Masquerade to Masquerade Revised. Yeah. I disagree completely. Okay. Uh, it is way, way different than that. Um, just from, because I, I so the, the, the rule, or sorry, the chapter on Kindred Rules, the basic rules for existence, I wrote that whole chapter um, mm-hmm. so I can speak to it pretty hard. Um, so, so, okay, prime example, Sunlight. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in Requiem, sunlight depends on um, how much of your body is exposed. It does between one and about five aggravated damage per turn. Most yeah. characters, two turns, they're dead. In in Requiem, um, Blood and Smoke Edition, um, humanity is going to play into that, and it's um it's a it's a huge difference. So humanity ten, we're talking about one bashing damage. Um, at humanity one, we're talking about five aggravated damage uh, and your blood potency is going to determine how quickly that damage takes place so at the higher levels um, like oh. or sorry the higher the lower levels like blood potency one it's going to be like every 10 minutes you're going to take damage uh, ah. and then at blood potency 10 it's going to be three times per turn jesus christ so it's like a so so it's um the one thing is determining the damage but the other one's like it's like uh, wow it's like a, a catalyst to it it's exactly. Because yeah, exactly. like the blood, po- the blood potency is kind of like a the more potent your blood is, it's also a, a kind of a a um, because obviously it's a transmutation of human blood into vitae. So it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a real kind of um, for kindred. It's a it's a physical manifestation of how tainted their soul is in some respects, yes. and so how how hated they are by the world. 
that's really yeah. solid. That's really, really great. Yes, the um, sun does not like you. And the no. more of a vampire you are, the less the sun likes you. Uh, but the thing but, is, it's like those changes. I don't think. I, I think they're going to be. They'll they'll add some really great new story elements, like some mm-hmm. cool new role playing opportunities. But I don't think like because obviously, as as I said at the start, like I finished my second season of Requiem, and I will most probably use a lot of these rules for yeah. the third one. But I don't see them as massively. I, th- I don't think they will massively change how the game works for me or how how the story plays out. I think it may. I think it will just kind of reinforce certain concepts in, in in vampire like you know how much of a monster you are or you know how how actual human you are because as you say like not having theft as a, as being a, uh, as a, a as a morality thing and thus you know this relates to how well you resist sunlight that's great because what is it sam your character she uh, he um he's quite happy giving his herd drugs and then feeding on them but we relate that that doing that's not a morality breaking thing for her character because, you know, actually wanting to take drugs is maybe quite a human thing compared to vampires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. What else we got? <laughs> <laughs> well, the I, I think I think that really the the, the changes that we're going to see as far as that goes, um, a lot of it's going to be in setting implications that are sort of. They're, they're, some of them are written, some of them are unwritten. So, like the the sunlight thing, for example, you're gonna have you know, you've got elders who they might be taking 10, 15 aggravated a turn if they if they touch sunlight, and then you have neonates who can spend a whole day out in the sun. Wow. Um, and so, what does that say for the elders? Well, it says that you can't just be the tyrannical douchebag who says, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm just gonna lay down the iron fist. You have to do what I say because I said so." Because if you do that, you are fucked. Yes. <laughs> and so it's it's an inherent checks and balance system that didn't exist in Requiem and didn't exist in Masquerade. Um, so now you have to fear and respect the young because they have an entire day to plan your demise. Wow. I mean, that's like such a massive change. That's like the same level of scale of change, just getting rid of generation and having potency made because yes. obviously you, you got rid of the diabolary gra- uh, gravy train essentially um yeah <laughs> wow um what other things i was thinking like um so obviously you know obviously like the mechanics of how vampires are working has changed it will be changing uh and also certain disciplines and there's some new devotions um like the hideous nightmare majesty wet dream um, <laughs> um, but um, like, what can you say about how um, how's the, like the setting material being kind of refined? Maybe because I think one of the weak one of the weak spots in Requiem was that the amount of people that would look at Requiem and go, "Oh, all the Carthians are communists, aren't they?" And it's just like they're not yeah. fools. They're not. And the same with like the Invictus. Like the Invictus, as they're presented, is they're they're basically the Camarilla, but when you get into the the their actual society of like guilds and dynastic houses and how elders leapfrog, and that really adds something that again wasn't in the core book. And the same with the Circle Crown, and the same with the Lancaster Sanctum. So, um, kind of like how's that material being readdressed and kind of pre- and represented? Um, I don't know how to kind of the feel that we get that we'll be getting or changes maybe 
so I feel that um, a lot of the times the I, I've run into the same frustration uh, with with these sort of the preconceived notions about the covenants and the clans and stuff. And um, so you know, a little of that is clearly going to be you know trying to re relate things to masquerade equivalents because people have to find patterns and symbols and whatever. I don't I don't yeah. know. Um, so there, there's that. But then there's also the fact that it, sometimes sometimes the writing had that sort of timidness to it um mm. it presented these examples and it says okay so this is what the carthian movement is but if you really want to you could do other things with it and we're we're not really going to do that with with the newer setting the newer setting is getting updated and we are definitely giving you ideas for how this could be modular um mm -hmm. we're going to tell you okay so here is what carthian fascist looks like this is um, <laughs> this is what and you know, the prince model in all of our example cities i think there's one that uses the traditional prince model yeah um the yeah the, the core invictus idea um so we're learning a lot of lessons from say damnation city um, yeah. um we're learning a lot from the various covenant books and we're 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 taking a lot of those ideas we're honing a lot of them to erase our points um the ones that we particularly love and then we're just sort of like you know some of them we're not really too concerned about there's some there's some minor changes and things but really um we want to give you this toolkit to do to do something different um yeah, yeah. and yeah like if you've been following the line you can see where it's been going um with, with say Don's macabre and the clan books there's been a lot of change in tones as rose took over as developer um, and I think that this is sort of the logical extension to that. Um, we are no longer in any way held back by the the sort of legacy concepts that were mm. in Masquerade. And I think that that's it's great because Beach Twenty allows us to do that. We don't have yeah. to do, you know, Vampire the Masquerade, but a little bit different. Um, we don't have to worry about that because now we have two different game lines, and we can diverge them and focus on all of the things that we wanted. Correctly and cool, uh, but we we couldn't have necessarily gone that far. Um, so in a lot of ways, New Requiem is like big ninety degree, one eighty degree shifts. Um, I told you about touchstones. Uh, every mm -hmm. vampire has touchstones now. That's a big deal. Um, in all of our our, our playtest chronicles, it's been it's done a lot for the game that every character has to have someone that they're close to. Uh, you can't have the strong, silent loner who, you know, walks against the desert winds of destiny or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that. It is literally impossible to do that in New Requiem. We have the, the clan flaws are now different. So Deva, Deva, for example, you had um, the Deva used to have the, they lose two willpower anytime they fail to indulge in their bite. Yeah, that either never came into play or it was completely crippling, um, and that stinks. New Requiem, Deva, when they feed from someone, awesome. We give you our blessing. You can feed from someone. You feed from them twice, you're addicted. Sweet. So basically, Deva have two choices. They can either be king of the one stand, or they can be center of a cult of personality. <laughs> yes. Okay. That is two modes of Deva now. Cool. Yeah, because I, I don't know. Um, I think the way it's really hard to kind of like describe where Requiem has gone since a lot more of the newer books. It's kind of like trying to describe. It, it's like first of all, like 
the mood and tone and everything like you know trying to compare what was gothic punk to what is now modern gothic storytelling because that's what Requiem kind of advertises itself as and you know I always kind of draw a distinction it's kind of like comparing Burton uh, Tim Burton's kind of uh, uh, Gotham of of the first Batman film to something that's a bit more kind of Nolan versus Batman yes and yes. they're both stark but one is one is gothic in an overt way because it has gargoyles and giants you know statues holding for architecture and the other one is gothic in the traditional sense of what you know gothic literature means which is you know it it, it has that dark tone but it doesn't mean you see gargoyles and 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 death everywhere and people shooting up on every street corner and um but what also i think compares is maybe I always feel this, and this is this is relates to how I kind of relate Werewolf the Forsaken to say Werewolf the Apocalypse is also the the um the 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 style of of violence and gore. I imagine like Requiem is kind of like how you you know when you, when you look at say the Evil Dead, uh, you know the original kind of Evil mm-hmm. Dead, the, the gore's kind of over the top and it's everywhere, and it can yeah. al- almost get to a point where it's laughable. Whereas I think in Requiem, if you get into doing some like body horror and the more horrific parts of the disciplines you can relate that to more kind of more um contemporary maybe more refined ways of doing prosthetics to like you know the saw films that where it's it's almost so visceral and tangible but that's my view on it i could be entirely wrong or people can tell me to piss off <laughs> no, no no actually so that's that's a um that's a that's a fun interpretation that i totally share the i think that i think that the difference that we're, we're seeing now is that Masquerade had a had a gothic aesthetic, whereas uh, Requiem is gothic thematic. We've only taken that and run with it. So the conversation that I've had way too many times for my own fucking sanity at this point is um, the the sunlight thing. Yeah. Every single fucking time it comes up, somebody <laughs> says, "Well, they're trying to get the Twilight fans." Well, first off, fuck you. Uh, for for another. What's wrong with that? Uh, for another, have you fuckers read Dracula? Have you read yeah. Carmilla? Like yeah. this is not this is not something that is new. It's what this is. This is very classic. Um, my the the humanity, the sunlight system that I've designed. It it is uh, inspired by Dracula. It is not inspired by Twilight. Uh, and the fact that these I, I, whippersnappers uh, base all of their concepts of what a vampire is on either Blade or Anne Rice, that is yeah. sad. And the fact that they can't dig into that and see that it's a, you know, it's, it's a Dracula thing. This is, this is gothic horror. Uh, that's, that's, that's a bad thing. Uh, Dracula was unwanted by the daylight. That doesn't mean that he couldn't go out. And he had to, he had his daily affairs. So he goes out in the sun and the, the daytime tells him, I don't want you. You, you aren't as cool at this point. You can't, you can't do awesome things. The nighttime is your time. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean that you're, you're restricted. So gives us a chance to show you that contrast and they're just saying okay day passes you guys wake up what do you do and what two uh recent tv series obviously highlight that view of like you know how vampires work with daylight i mean being human the uk series kind of shows like you know mitchell doesn't like going out in the daylight but he does and elder vampires like it less yeah 
and um and all and another one it only had one run uh, one one season people thought it was a bit too twilight a bit too dawson's creaky but moonlight mick st john is a complete badass but when the sun's up he's moving from shadow to shadow he's wearing shades because he you know he doesn't like being in the sun too long and that yeah, works like your average, perfectly yeah. with everything so i'm really excited about it all <laughs> Uh, Mike, you got any more questions um, or anything you want to find out that you could port into other games? Like, again, port back into Masquerade for hell, for for fuck's sake, because there sounds like loads of stuff we can make. Indeed. Well, I think I'm going to have to wait until the books come out to uh, really kind of go over them and and figure out what I want to steal. Okay. (laughs) Um, Right. Hmm, I don't know. Shall we talk about ADX? Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Topics of highbrow storytelling. So, uh, David, yeah, Chris and I don't know anything about Apotheosis Drive X <laughs> whatsoever. So, could you, you know, because we're such complete newbies, give us a uh, kind of like a, a once over, you know, a little, uh, little teaser of what the setting and the uh, rules are like? So, first off, I have to say, Mike, you're a liar. You're a oh. filthy liar. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, ADX Apotheosis Drive Act. It's um it's it's um the new game that we're doing, Machine Age, Philomena and I. And uh, actually it's it's looking more white wolfy than I thought. Stu Wilson is also working on it. Um but so ADX is a mecha game. It is a philosophical mecha game, um, powered by the Fate engine. Um it is it is drawn from an inspirational source from Mobile Suit Gundam, um, Evangelion. Uh, Xeno Gears, those sorts of uh, the stories about giant robots that are really stories about what it means to be human. Um, just sort of using them as an allegory and using them as a point of contrast. Um, and it uses the Fate Engine, which is a simple rules light, very highly cinematic, highly um, or not not cinematic, highly fictional um, driven game system. Uh, so that's that's the the raw basics of ADX. I don't know, David. I mean, I've already got uh, Mech Warrior Second Edition. I've got uh, I've got Mech Ton Zeta <laughs> already. So why why would I want to uh, check out this Mecha RPG when I've already got these other ones? Well, uh, you could unload those books and not break your back the next time you have to move them. So there, mm-hmm. there's that. Um, ADX ADX is a different experience. Um, we are honing in on different themes, different moods, different ideas um, than those games. Mech Warrior is good for what it does. It is, um, it is basically it is a tactical war game where you're playing giant robots who slowly march across the battlefield and lob uh, missiles at each other and things. And, and if you want to deal with hit locations and you know individual hit points per limb, whatever, you can do that. And that's awesome. Battletech exists. Mech Warrior exists. Really, though, what ADX does is tell these these very dramatic stories um they are ramped up on a sort of technological and and even a rules level to go quick to go easy and and to go big um in battletech if you want to destroy 60 mechs good fucking luck (laughs) basically what you do is you can take march um and on on your calendar and you can cross it off (laughs) um and and by the end of that of march then that's that's done that you might have done what you need to but then then of course 
you know, you had to resolve turns for all of the 60, 60 dudes and stuff. In ADX, if you want to kill 60 dudes as a part of your turn, that's cool. Hmm. You make the roll. Um, that is something that could happen. So we are telling a different scale of story than those type of things. This is not this is not a, a tactical miniature thing where we have to track every single thing on the battlefield. Um, this is you are playing godlike fucking robots who are just who are able to massacre large swaths of the battlefield. These are these are allegories for atomic bombs, and that is scary. Um, and we don't want scary to take a month to resolve. We want it to be done in five seconds. So, roll the dice. Okay, how many how many enemies did you take down? That's how many weapons you just made. Congratulations, good for you. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So you keep talking about the drama in this story. So could you give us a little bit of information about the uh, the setting of ADX? Yes, uh, the setting of ADX is uh, okay. So there's, there's four factions that, that you can play, and, and the the big thing that we really wanted to hone in on with these factions is is that nobody is right, um, nobody is ever good, nobody is ever bad. Everyone is working for their own motivations. That is a, is a very very personal in that regard. The various factions have different alliances, different um, enemies that, that shift and change over the course of things. Because nobody is bad, nobody is good, everyone has their own interests that shift and change. People are, are dynamic, people, yeah, sorry, people evolve, people change their viewpoints. Uh, and that is, that is a big deal. So our four factions, just to you know, give a little teaser for it, uh, you have the One Earth Accord. The One Accord is, um, it's like the UN. It's a large group of developed nations who have gotten together. They've decided the whole Earth needs one government because if Earth has one government, we don't really have anyone to fight with. Um, and that'll end war forever because that totally would work. Um, and and they, are, um, they are mostly privileged developed nations who think that they know what's best for the rest of the world. And that's sort of sad. And that gave birth to one of the other factions, the People's Collective. Um, this is generally less developed nations who have gotten together, and they've decided you can't have one rule, one one government that can tell everyone what to do. You can't hope to represent the whole of the world with one group of, of ostensibly white dudes. Um, ain't gonna happen. So they have um, they've gotten together, and they are building uh, these interesting like junk bots from the scraps of the other things that they've salvaged um we have the nation of oya who are a um, group of genetically engineered super soldiers who they have um they have built these strange almost organic titans mechs um that nobody completely understands and there's all sorts of weird sort of like mystical implications for example whenever one of their titans dies they plant it in the ground they find somewhere that's completely desolate and infertile they plant their robot in the ground and then around it their a jungle blooms uh people become miraculously fertile um so they have a, a strange sort of mythical bent to them um and lastly we have the stratos commonwealth who is an army of clones who lives out in the um, the asteroid belt? They kind of started the last world war, um, and you know, sorry, are bad. But now they want to find a new homeland. And since they've been exiled to the asteroid belt, they want to get back to Earth. They maybe want to go to Mars, they, but they they want a planet, and they feel that it's not so much to ask that they want a place to live. Um, 
and they face persecution and racism from natural born earth people. Um, so they they have they certainly have a dark past and they have a lot of baggage, but they feel that they are entitled to a world and nobody is willing to give them that space. Um, and so that's the setting. The setting is all about ramping up that technology, ramping up that um, that sort of dangerousness um, to the point where you cross the line between what a human should be able to do and what a god should be able to do. Once you get to the point where you can end an entire civilization on a whim, are you a human anymore? Should you have the rights and responsibilities to make those choices? That's city acts. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, David. Whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if, what if, this is hypothetical, what if I didn't want to play in that setting? What if I wanted, I don't know, medieval robots or something? <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a good chance that you're going to be able to play medieval robots. That depends on how the Kickstarter goes. <laughs> Um, the, the, the Kickstarter we're doing right now, it's almost over. There's like eight, seven days left of it. So people have to go and back it. Um, the, the supplementary book that we are building as a part of the Kickstarter, is going to be a whole bunch of alternate settings. The core book, the core ADX book is its own setting. It's this huge sort of gazetteer of the world of 2,412 or whatever. Um, but the supplement we're building is a series of um, additional settings, additional environments. Uh, and the further we get on the Kickstarter, the bigger this book becomes. Everyone that is involved in the Kickstarter will be getting the at least the PDF. You can get the print copy if you want as well. Um, and like right now, so we have um, we have the ADX setting, and the supplement is going to have um, Apotheosis Drive, or sorry, Apotheosis of the Rose Princess Drive, which is a shoujo manga style um, anime setting uh, where you are playing young princesses whose robots are are strengthened by their powers of love and hope and things like that. Um, so it's got a little bit of like Escaflone, a little bit of Magical Night Ray, Earth, that sort of thing. Um, we have Stu Wilson, the developer for Werewolf the Apocalypse and Werewolf the Forsaken. He is doing one called Guardians of Steel, which is basically if the Transformers were tasked with fighting off Cthulhu. Um, we are just about to come up with, um, Jeffrey McVeigh's Vimanakatha. Vimanakatha is, um, Bollywood style epics done with, um, robots. So you can, um, you, you can have dance numbers, um, and you can play a pop star who is piloting a robot. Um, so Bollywood style. And then the next one that we've got lined up is called, um, sorry, Dr Dragon Trinity Crash, which is basically final fantasy style uh magitech armor type things um and it's uh it's you know medieval it is uh fantasy style um and also at the same time if we hit that point i got one um that is called um cyber saber ascension which is basically um it's a bubblegum crisis um mercenary troop with battle armor um uh, who are going up against powerful cyborgs so we have all sorts of really cool um, settings that you can play in if you don't want to do core ADX. Nice. Nice. Yeah, definitely cool. a lot of options, which is one of the coolest things about this. Um, I'm especially interested with your, your kind of cyberpunky 
one that you're going to come up with. Um, if mm-hmm. we make that, that, that tier. Also, Chris might potentially be writing something, right? Yeah, I mean, it's at the tail end of the, um, of the stretch goals. So I would most probably say that, you know, looking at the way things are going, it'll mostly, uh, I'll be honest, mostly not get funded. I'm glad the ones that are earlier on are getting funded because there's some really sweet settings in there. But um, I know I might just finish writing it and, you know, we put it out as a kind of, you know, just post up here on Darker Days and going, here's something you guys would have got if you put more money in and there it is. Well, um, I'm thinking that for the additional stuff for, for like, yeah. cause you know, realistically we're probably not going to hit Chris's level, but um, if we don't, that doesn't mean that we can't publish those anyway. Uh, we have mm. POD available to us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one is a, uh, it's called uh, Apotheosis Hymns of the Ancients. So the basic concept is a mashup of what is great if, about Escaflone, which is, uh, you know, arcane uh, battle armor because Escaflone is a medieval fantasy setting. So it's people in armor, you know, getting involved in massive fights using swords and shields on giant 40 foot tall mechs. So, you know, it's the type of stuff that Exalted's War Striders was uh, inspired on, by. And the other thing it mashes up with uh, is um, the concepts uh, that appear in. Um, in Soul Eater, uh, and in that anime, um, you have uh, you have two people, uh, a Meister and their uh, their oh, let's get this right, their Death Scythe, which is a another person. So that in Soul Eater, you've got these students at a, uh, a school, and um, they form they're, they're in group, they're in teams, in pairs, and the the one student turns into the weapon, and of course, while they're in weapon mode. They're still talking. So I thought, why can't the person just turn into a mech? And, you know, uh, fate has rules for, you know, stresses. uh, And why not have a stress tracker that is the relationship between the person and the pilot and the mech that they're in? And so it's kind of about resolving relationship issues between the pilot and their, their teammate, who is the mech, and how that influences how they fight. Yeah, the thing I was interested about with uh with with that style, um, with that setup with the one person trying into the mech is uh how how damage would transfer mm-hmm. and how they might physically get injured. Yeah, that could create some interesting. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not a massive I'm not a massive like fate uh person as I don't know the rules well enough to kind of like I'm still looking at it and trying to mess around with it. I'm more kind of focusing on getting the setting right because I'm sure people have some better ideas when I talk to them when I get to that mm-hmm. stage. But yeah, damage transfer will be a thing um, and how that works. Yeah, well, it would just create some pretty interesting stories. So yes, uh, ADX is very interesting. Uh, I've, uh, I was helping uh, play test it, but uh, we, we haven't been, haven't been uh, having sessions lately, David. I know we'll we'll have to do that. We'll probably. I mean, it won't be a play test at this point because we're we're developed, we're ready. Um, but we can absolutely start uh, gaming again. I've just been busting gas because so, we've been talking about Strix Chronicles. Uh, we did have a couple of writers drop out, so that means that there's more board counts in right. our hands. Uh, we just got an email from um, John Sneed about Eon of uh, Trinity. Um, so there's that. I, I recently worked on the. Um, the free RPG day version of Vampire the Requiem oh, nice. um, that's going to be coming out. Um, it's super exciting because it's fully contained 
Um, it's not like your tr- traditional free RPG day quick start where you just you're giving characters oh play through this adventure. There is an adventure, but there's actually full rules that you can use to make a character. Sweet. Um, yeah, like it's it's really badass. I like it a lot. Um, I also recently worked on the um, the Scion um, April Fool's Day product. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's been like technocracy. So I've been busting ass um, and we will have to get playing ADX more soon. Right on, but that's uh, always a good thing when you're busy uh, in the gaming industry. Cool. So uh, yeah, good problem to have. I think we've basically covered all the points there. Um, obviously, we'll have to hope this gets edited up very quickly so people can learn more about it and we can get the word out that Apotheosis is out there at Kickstarter right now for... So we'll make that make that so. Um, have we got anything else to talk about? Jeez, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, David, what's uh, your website if people want to uh, check things out? Um, my website is machineageproductions.com. We're currently kind of fussing with that because we had a hack recently. Nice. So um, it's, it's a little bare bones right now, but um, we have that. Um, and, of course, the Kickstarter, I mean, we can link to that as well, but. Yeah, machineageproductions.com. Um, my Google Plus, which you guys have linked to a few times, uh, that's probably yeah. where I talk about the most design shit. Google Plus is where it is at right now with anything gaming-wise. Um, it is. Cool. Um, I don't think there's anything more then to say other than we'll obviously add those all into the show note into the uh, into the show notes for people to. Uh, get the links um so as always i think that's pretty much it isn't it mike if people want to get in contact for us for the competition again uh the email is darkerdaysradio at gmail.com and we do have a facebook which i sometimes post updates to but anyone anyone that's still using it should really be using google plus because we're there um we actually do have a tumblr which is fairly active i basically go there looking for um cool pictures and stuff and i post updates there so um and there's actually a cool gaming blog so people may see some replies where there's a bit of gaming advice going up on there yeah uh oh we have a twitter twitter <laughs> uh g plus online games on uh, hangout are gonna be going on of course uh, andrew bampton is running his gargoyles game and like three hours so um yep of wing and stone a gargoyles story uh, um chris is bravely going to be running cthulhu tech yep <laughs> <laughs> i will set a date for that uh sometime soon um i'll mostly be in the next month uh, uh yeah and i'll have another hangout game which will be a uh World of yep. mortals game and i was uh, i was challenged yeah. to run changing the dreaming so <laughs> yes i need to learn the rules of that game and make a story and hopefully it'll be awesome excellent yep so that's, i think that's about it uh thank you very much david for uh attending this episode and telling us about all the ridiculous stuff you've been doing and uh all the how, how busy you've been very cool has been extremely cool absolutely yeah thank you thank you for having me i love every time i'm ever with you guys awesome Thank you. Very All much. right, I think that's it for this episode of Dark Days Radio. Good night. Good night.
Yeah, All right, sure. We're recording again. Hey, David. Okay. Um, Shadow Run. You did some work on that. Yeah, I did. Um, I, so I haven't actually written anything for them for a while, but you're going to see some of my stuff real soon. Um, there's going to be a edition box set. Um, and I wrote some adventures for that. Um, actually, I really liked one of them uh, where you're trying to... Um, you're basically trying to get to a um, singer, a pop star, um, in the middle of a, a crowded concert um, to stop someone from assassinating her. Um, but these adventures were written like four years, five years ago, um, and they were uh, they were supposed to go in the fourth edition box set, but the fourth edition box set just didn't happen. Um, so now they're going to go in fifth edition. So they're getting modified. Wait, so sure. you wrote these like four years ago? Yeah, I wrote them. I think it was like four, maybe five years ago. Yeah, I wrote them a long time ago. That's awesome. Well, it's good to hear that they're uh, finally being released. Yeah, I mean, like it paid for them. That's going to be great. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Did you uh, have to update the rules in them at all, or did someone else do that? Uh, someone else is going to do that. I, I was asked to. Like, they were like, oh, do you want to do this? You know, whatever. And I was like, you know, honestly, I haven't been following the discussions as closely as some of the other people. Um, so why don't you get someone who has been? Because I want to do this. I'm going to have to get through 300 pages of notes and then try to fuck with it. Um, it will take me weeks and weeks and weeks just to do these NPC stats. Um, but uh, if yeah. you want to do that, like if you want to have someone else do it. So they, they hired someone else to do the rules. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. Because, um, yeah. Mike, because I linked to you um, the other day that on uh, Fear the Boot, they yes, have a two-parter interview with Mark uh diner is that right yeah oh yeah uh so yeah that's kind of cool because obviously they've been he's the first part of the show they're talking a bit about uh you know how they've addressed the mechanics of the game and and how he got brought on because he knows the rules to fourth edition so well and other editions that you know they've they've really gone into the nuts and bolts of it so i would recommend listening to that if people want to find out some more yeah definitely <laughs> so I basically was totally chilling out to a point after a while with everything because it's been a, uh, uh, it was a crazy night of programming on Wednesday, but everything is now finally I've cracked um, the back of my the uh, a real technical part of my research. So um, I'm finally getting to. Um, Doing the next bit, which will be generating massive amounts of uh, of uh, data to data mine for it. Uh, yeah, this is all fundamental method development, which is never fun. <laughs> Especially when you have multiple complex numbers going everywhere, and you have to make sure all your eyes and everything disappear. Uh, Mike, I'm sure you appreciate complex numbers. That's pretty proud of that, actually.
Um, that's why I started my field. Uh, I realized that I had a math degree and not a science degree. Uh, it disappointed me. <laughs> to vibration, obviously. Indeed. Alright, so while while this uh, <clears throat> scientific mathematical talk is great, uh, <laughs> we should probably talk about the World of Darkness and yeah. uh, ADX as well. So, uh, 